0: So, as stated before, we will now continue with John chapter 14. If you like, you may turn your Bibles there. And in the particular, we will be looking at three verses. And I think it's adequate, it's appropriate, especially of our time. Now, this can be a standalone sermon, and so with this, Not only are we going through verses 12 to 14, but I'm going to title it in particular. So that the father may be glorified in the son. And I want to use those words, particularly to bring to your attention. By verse 12 in chapter 14 of John, it reads, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, The works that I do, he will do also, and greater work than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Let us now go to the Lord our God in prayer. Father, we do thank you on this Saturday that you have given us, Lord, and we are mindful that you have provided us to be here able body with faculties full intact to take in your word so in this lord we thank you for such love and kind mercies therefore be with thy servant that he feeds and teach your sheep and be with the congregation so that they may have a childlike love willing mind to receive your word knowing this and what's being shown you show you are continually with your people but in of this you demand of us obedience. And of this, Lord, we ask that you work in our hearts to obey you in all that you ask us to do. It's in Christ's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Now, I'm going to read again John 16, 25 through 33. Because remember, I did indicate to everyone that this is a bookend of sorts. For example, we note that in John 13, we see the process of which he took to teaching his apostles, in particular of the time the Lord's Supper. And John showed that kind of dichotomy in regards to the separation amongst the apostles, being Peter and being Judas. Now, upon his discussion in chapter 14, when we get to 16, I'm going to read here towards the end because Everything bracketed between these two chapters, I want to make an emphasis of. It reads again, I start at verse 25 in chapter 16. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you. Because you love me and have believed that I came forth from the Father, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world and I'm leaving the world again and going to the Father. By verse 29. His disciples say, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and are not using figurative language. Now we know that that now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this, we believe that you came from God. The master responds back. Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered each to his own home and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the father is with me. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Now, again, (laughs) when chapter 14 starts, the Lord states, Do not let your heart be troubled, because towards the end of chapter 13, we noted, how they already been told that where he is going, they cannot come. But he must go before to prepare a place so that where he is there, they can follow also. So in this work of discourse that the Messiah is having with his apostles in chapter 14, it's very quaint that As we get to verses 12 to 14, he's making an emphasis of the communication they will now have with the father. But I want to actually bring your attention first to chapter four, to verse 14. (laughs) And the reason why is because here in the West in particular, (laughs) <laughs> the United States. But more so, when we say the West, it's everything west of Germany. We've noticed the ideology of such statements as name it and claim it. Or sometimes you may have heard the power of positive thinking. This, we can just turn on the television, pop the radio on, and you'll hear this kind of adage one or the other. Now, with this being said, one is to receive a sensation or a vibration or an ascent of knowledge that whatever their heart desire will somewhat some way shape or form come true. Especially, think about it. We live in a very commercialized world. Every 30 seconds you see an ad. And the amount of marketing we are exposed to has become so much commonplace, we are numb, absolutely numb to what's being stated and what the intent is. Now, this introduction I'm about to provide you is going to lay some groundwork here. So let's get a little bit more relative with everyone. As those who's grown up with a childhood, granted, most of us have, we've experienced this particular childhood game, Monopoly. Right? If one will look at their homes, there may be a monopoly game set in the closet. For some, they play it every week. For others, you probably haven't seen it in four years and meaning to dust it off. But still, the commonplace <laughs> is that for some reason, there is a monopoly set, and everyone's home. And for those who's watching overseas, you can Google it and you will know exactly what it looks like. In fact, it's actually become a worldwide popular game, but at one point, in particularly two countries, it was outlawed: China and Cuba. Now, if you want to know what makes these two synonymous, you can just look at the 1960s, and I will leave it at that. But I've been told that has now passed and the kids can play the game. Nevertheless, the concept of the game is through the roll of dice, which will show what future is in store for the player. The player has no control over the outcome. Well now, unless you're playing Vegas style and the dice are rigged, but nonetheless, they have no control of how many steps they are to go. The player is at the behest of the Dice's outcome. So you may be wondering, what does a game of chance have to do with John 14? See, Monopoly, though it is a childhood game and as innocent as it might seem to be, it shows the extreme outcome of humanist thought. And in fact, we have two humanist thought that I've just given you. One is the power of manifestation, but the other is the concept of chance, the thought process of my life being controlled by fate. Both, I'm going to tell you now, are not Christian. And this is what we're seeing here in John 14. Now, now, now. Does this mean that one cannot ponder in his heart to attain something and then work towards that goal? I mean, if you've been placing your heart to want something and you're putting in the effort and the skill set and learning and attaining knowledge to attain that goal, is that wrong? No, absolutely not. That is okay. Now, on the other hand, does this mean that we cannot draw lots to lead to an outcome that is outside of our control just to provide some sort of fairness that one side is not controlled by the other and just transpired that the person that it landed on seemed to be what was intended? Of course. In fact, did we not see in Acts 1, 23 to 26? Note here, after Judas betrayed the Messiah, the apostles cast lots and they prayed by verse 24. They prayed and said, you Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go his own place. And they drew lots for them and the lots fell on Matthias and he was added to the eleventh. But whether you think through manifestation or whether you think through the concept of fate or chance, it will never take away from the rightful will of the Lord God. You see, in examining verses 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. These words of our Lord and Savior have been so misused because the extremes of manifestation or powerful thinking or positive thinking and chance have been normalized in the realm of Christian practice. Such words truly came from the master's mouth. But let's look back at Acts 1, the intention of the apostles. They were right in wanting to see Well, we had 12. Let's replace. That was their method ship. Why? A friend of theirs who they broke bread with turned aside. So they prayed. They even prayed to show if the Lord is, if the Lord could show in his own hand who he was willing to occupy this ministry. But in this in this they were still short sighted because they thought this earthly possession of which this office composed of was just seen in the earthly. Not knowing or even understanding they they weren't the one who created the office. So what happens? The one who created the office has to Feel it back again and what does our Lord do in honoring their quote-unquote ask huh? yeah they hung out with Matthias but he wasn't considered the one to replace Judas in fact by Acts 9 3 through 8 Romans 1 verse 1 Romans 11 13, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 1 1st Corinthians 9 1 through 2 First Corinthians fifteen verse nine, Second Corinthians one verse one, and Second Corinthians eleven five. This is just to name a few that the Messiah suggested otherwise. You know what amazes me is the amount of <laughs> the amount of in- good intentions people try to make and trying to bring people into Christianity. But what they fail to realize is, well, how did you get in the first place? Some people don't even realize so much of the strife and some of the mental loops they had to make because truth be told, Christianity starts on the offensive. When you're told you are a sinner, that is a polemic attack on the individual. There is nothing nice about telling people you are a sinner. Now, they can respond in two ways. They can respond with the affirmative in which yes or no, I am not. Or they can respond in the defense of which they will make tons and tons of uh, either it's an ad hominem by attacking the person who just offended them or by making a notion that God doesn't even exist at all but the person who made the good attention that they want to bring them into the fold never consider how they were brought in in the first place in fact I bring you this the antinomian Christian and note my words here for context clues the antinomian christian will purport Now, for those who are looking to increase their vocabulary that's another ten dollar word to purport means to appear or to claim to be something but it is especially false so the antinomian christian will purport to the humanists that they could continue to believe in manifestation or po- positive thinking or chance and fate. But they only can do it under the validity of Christianity. For only there will it have purpose. In fact, they can even state. Jesus said, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So the humanist could play along. He could say, well, what if I want a large sum of money? Will I receive it? The antinomian Christian would have to be consistent and purport and reiterate again. Jesus said, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. But what happens as time goes by? The humanist has not received his large sum of money. So what will he do? He will go and continue to curse God and violate his law and pursue positive thinking and or chance. But what happens to the antinomian Christian? They're left by a crossroad. For on the left side of the fork, they will start questioning the Messiah's statement. But on the right side of the fork, they will go and continue in ing- ignorance because all they'll just do is believe that the humanist was not believing hard enough. You know the sad part about those two roads? They can lead to walking from the faith altogether and then it makes it seem like the Messiah was purporting something that human beings could do you see this is why verse 14 has been so misused and why do they not use it correctly because they seem to always forget verses 12 to 13 by verse 12, even though we're looking at the middle of a complete discourse that the Messiah is having with the apostles, because by verse 11, he had continued. Here in verse 12, note how it's now flowing for the next aspect of this discourse, the communication with the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me The works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Here the master continues the premise of calming the hearts of his apostles, because they were told they could not go where he is going, and that Peter will deny him three times. Upon hearing this, they're shaken to their core. They're saddened by the news that rather than hearing that their master would take to the death. Like Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob who died of old age, and especially Moses who had their bones carried from when they were dead and placed in this particular spot, or rather he could have been like Elijah and just not suffer death, but then raise up to the sky. He is going to be lifted up and killed. Peter understood. Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. John understood the kind of death he was going to take. But both, especially the way John has phrased this, they would not have understand until the resurrection and ascension of the master. I mean, in John 12, 31 and 34, he noted, Judgment is now upon this world, and now the ruling of this world will be casted out. And if I am lifted up from this world, will draw all men to myself. What does John state? But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death from which he was to die. Now, during the discourse with the apostles in chapter 14, again here in verse 12, the master iterates that he's in fact He's in fact not gone from as he will not be no longer with them in the physical sense, but he will be with them to denote that he will be forevermore with them in the spiritual sense. For note, he starts truly, truly, I say you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. You know, you won't find, as I brought you that first example, The antinomian Christian would even consider to perform the works of turning water into wine by the command of their voice, actually. You won't even find them trying to consider taking fish and bread and by the command and prayer multiply and feed a country. In fact, you will never Imagine the antinomian Christian going to the grave and command the dead to be alive again. But he told this to his apostles that upon his ascension after the resurrection, they will be able to perform these works. Why so? Why so? Well, it was necessary. It was necessary for the growth of the church. Again, what's more impressive is how interesting these works are going to be. And the greater works that they said than these he will do is just, you've seen everything that I have done, but there's so much more that's going to transpire after my ascension. Why? Because I go to the Father. It's amazing that for the growth of the church it was necessary that special people individuals needed to be called because they needed to call those who were lost and to be brought back to the fold. For note the Apostles who were first called by the will of God 2nd Corinthians 1 verse 1 a blessing was made to them in particular, specialized individuals who was needed to carry forth the growth of the kingdom. By 1 Corinthians twelve eighteen to 25, it reads, But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Now by verse 28 in particular, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, then prophets, then teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administration, and various tongues. Not all are apostles, are they? Not all are prophets, are they? Not all are teachers, are they? Not all are workers of miracles, are they? Not all have the gift of healing, do they? Not all do they speak with tongues, do they? The apostles and the select individuals were gifted with the honor that was to edify and push the kingdom and not divide it. For what happens? Those were specialized individuals. But I also want you to note those who were not specialized Paul continues here by verse 22 and 1st Corinthians 12 on the contrary it is much truer that the members of the body which seems to be weaker weaker are necessary and those members of the body which are deemed less honorable on these we even bestow more abundant honor And our less presentable members become more presentable, whereas our more presentable members don't even have need. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked so that they may, there may be no division in the body and that the members may have the same care for one another. This honor which you have, and as well as others who may deem to seem that they may not have much, this honor is as the individuals showed their love by obeying the Master. Now, maybe one be wondering, what is this honor that we may be considering? I mean, not many of you are standing here today and giving a sermon so then the gift of teaching and preaching may not be to your suit. But that's not to consider the honor we bestowed on, we have bestowed on ourselves is not also considered with great responsibility. But to the individuals who may be wondering, well, may I be the weaker person? Sure. But here's an example of those who were deemed not to have much of a gift, how they respond in obedience. Mark twelve, forty-one through 44. And he sat down opposite the treasury and he began observing how many people were putting money into the treasury and many rich people were putting in larger sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, This poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the Treasury for they all put out of their surplus But she out of her own poverty put in all she owned all she had to live on How about those who? Again considered the walk they took to come into Christianity And in their old life, they took to receiving things, whether it's through ill gains, whether it's through lying, whether it's through stealing. I bring you to Luke 19, a rich man who was short in stature, could not see the Messiah as he was walking. So he climbed up a sycamore tree and the Messiah saw him. And he looked at him, and he said, Zacchaeus, hurry down and come, for today I must stay at your house. When the apostles saw this, they grumbled. They said he's gone to be the house of a sinner. And what does Zacchaeus do? He stops, and he says to the Lord, Behold, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. What honor did the Messiah bestow upon him? The Messiah stated by verse nine, Today salvation has come to this house because he too, the son of Abraham, for the son of man has come to seek and save that which is lost. I just named you two. Again, Paul iterates to show that individuals were gifted with these special works because it was not to divide the body, but to grow it. And the number of their works had to be plentiful because the loss had to be called back. Upon which it's noted in Acts one through two, they obeyed the words of the Messiah. Now we're going to look at the special individuals. What was their work in doing what the Messiah told them they were going to do? Well, the Messiah ascended and then the apostles received the gifts. And then by Acts 2, 1 to 13, Peter gives and professed in his sermon, the words that the prophet Joel and David is now fulfilled. And what's, what's amazing is the impact of his sermon and what beheld of it. By verse 43 in Acts 2, everyone kept a feeling of a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through to the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their properties. And their possessions. And they were sharing them with them all. As anyone might have need. Day by day. Continuing with one mind. Breaking bread from house to house. They were taking meals together. With gladness and sincerity of heart. They praised God and having favor with all the people and the Lord and his doing was adding to their numbers day by day, those who was being saved. <laughs> but that's not all. Remember these works. He said, you will do as I do Paul. He brings a young lad back from the dead acts 20, 29 through 12 and a young man was sitting on the windowsill. Sinking into the deep sleep. And Paul kept on talking. So the young man was overcome by sleep. And he fell down three floors. And was picked up dead. But Paul went down. Fell upon him. And after bracing him he said. Do not be troubled. For his life is in him. And when he got back up. He had broken bread and eaten. And he talked with them a little while. Till daybreak and they left. They take away the boy alive and they were greatly comforted. That's the difference between the antinomian Christian who's seeking his own pleasures and the words of the master coming in full effect to what it was intended to do. He spoke to the apostles in that day, because they were meant to do a mission. You see, verses 12-14 through 14 carries a lot of weight. Especially considering the apostles. Because the results showed that the kingdom grew. They didn't divide it. And because for the sake of time, the acts of the apostles. If you go through acts, you will see countless times as more and more people was added to the kingdom. Why? Because all the lost sheep was to come back to the good shepherd. John 10, 14 through 16. I am the good shepherd and I know my own. My own knows me even as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have no, I have other sheep which are not of this fault I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and become one flock with one shepherd. And by verse 13, all this that I'm telling you is now brought back in full circle. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will also do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Hence the title of the sermon so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now, just like when I was here with verses 1 through 4, I show you the message that was being portrayed and then what transpired with the apostles. So then, what is the message that's being bestowed to us? Well, if you look at verse 14, on what part of the road do you stand on? Or, better yet, on what side? When you look now, when it's stated to you, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Is the Father glorified in the Son when you ask of anything in his name? Because the antinomian Christian was not helping to expand the kingdom when they purported to the humanists that Jesus said, if you ask anything, of me and my name. I will do it. In fact then to know me and Christian. Was no better than the individual. Which in our era. And I won't into the company's name here. Is a beholder of a Latin. I'm sorry. A lantern. And the lantern contains a genie. That can bestow to you. The desires of your heart. See. The Messiah is not portraying this. And never ever ever. Did he intend it to be that way? The message is also to us as weaker vessels or members of the body, we are taught to do what we are asked to do by the master. And that's obey him. I gave you two examples. The poor widow and Zacchaeus. Anyone in this room can do that. There's no need or an ax to have special abilities. That's not what we were asked to do. We were just asked to obey. Those are normal people. And the honor bestowed upon them lives throughout the history of the church. Everybody would know those two individuals. But there was nothing more special about them. And then us obeying. It's amazing as the message that the Messiah gave to the apostles, the apostles then gives it to us in which we were told how we are to act. No, when James is moved by the stroke of the pen with the stroke of the pen, as he was moved by the spirit in James four, two through five, He states, you lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. But by verse three, you ask and you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives. So you may spend it on your own pleasures. You adulterous. You do not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God. So then what are we ought to do? James four thirteen through 15. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year and engage in business and make profit. And yet you do not know what your life will be again tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears a little while and then vanish. You ought to instead say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or do that. That to us is how we ought to consider John 12, 14, 12 through 14. And I I don't want to end it on the, the negative tone. Or I make you have this negative tone, but I want to reiterate that our desires has to play within a certain context. He does love you, absolutely he does. And if you consider some of your positions compared to other people in the world, you will realize how much love he has. That is no question, but in his love, he also has rules. And regulations. That if you do love him. You will keep them. As you will know. And when Pastor Jason comes back. You will see when he gets to verse 15. But to us. This message rings true. Whatever we do ask of him. He will do it. If. The father is glorified. In the son. That's the caveat. Anything you ask in your prayers is the Father glorified in the Son. And the reason why I bring up James is because if he lacks it in his will, then you know if it comes or it doesn't come, whatever transpires was for, it was in his will and it was for our good. That's the difference between us and the antinomian Christians. The key word antinomian means they do not observe nor respect the law of God. But they claim or they purport, there's that $10 word again, that they're Christians. But the Messiah showed, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But in reading what he transpired here, we once consider the weight that these three verses contained. People can always reiterate Verse 14. People could always reiterate verse 12. But they hate to reiterate verse 13. And they never say it to its completion. That last clause is important. So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. The Apostles showed it with the Acts. The book of Acts. Individuals showed it as we notice In the gospel of Luke in particular, but then you can show it too. It's amazing. In this particular month, we lost our senior pastor, but for someone (laughs) of his stature and his attitude and his ideals, he's really never gone as much as we have his works, his writings. His books, some of the memories that stand. He understood and believed anything that he was to do. May glorify God. And I know in all his prayers, because we've been taught, Pastor Jason and myself, we've been taught the quite and clear understanding of praying to God and that his will be done. And here, we're just telling you and transpiring the same message. Other than that, I don't know what else to tell you. (laughs) When I considered this sermon, I really wanted to make sure that when we come to the Lord God, it's a sense of reverence and a sense of feeling that he does and bends to our will. He never has and he never will but when we do come in the, in the humility that we do come in we know that whatever transpires whether bad or good it's always to his will and like the sermon is titled so that the father may be glorified in the son let's go to him in prayer